This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell. Glad you're with me. You know, I can't think of a better reason to be listening to Money Talks than those two leaders debates this week. Well, at least if you're interested in your cost of living or jobs or government debt, taxes, the economy, Canada's response to Chinese aggression, because I'll tell you, the debates didn't even skim the surface. And I think I'm being generous. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Also, one of my favorite economists, Davis Ray's John Johnson, is going to drop by. He's going to let us know what the leaders should have focused on and how their platforms measure up. Also, this week, six major Wall Street firms issued a warning that we all better hear. And I'm going to get Rob Levy to fill us in. Plus, a shocking stat about how organized crime... Well, wait. Okay, it's organized crime. I'll fill you in later. But I'll tell you, it's costing us in ways that I think most of us wouldn't suspect. Plus, I got Ozzy Jurek to talk about the latest government action that's actually making things worse in the housing market. And I'm going to finish with a goofy award. But first, let's come back to the leaders' debate. Well, I'll start with a couple of quotes regarding that debate, given we're only nine days away from selecting a government to deal with serious issues like record debt or warnings from both CSIS and the Canadian military about the threat China poses to Canada and the rest of the world. Well, let alone specific plans for a sustainable economic recovery that go beyond, hey, we're going to send you a check. The first is from the Globe and Mail's Andrew Coyne, who states, after watching the debates that, in quotes, ours is a deeply unserious political culture, and this debate is proof. Well, I'd agree. There's no chance for these debates to get beyond the most simplistic or superficial answers on every issue, given the format. What is it, a minute now on this subject and a minute for a response? I don't think it would take long to come up with changes to that format that could create at least some meaningful dialogue. I have trouble believing, though, that anyone who watched the debates left feeling better informed. Instead, There seems to be so much emphasis on who won, as if debating is the key characteristic for a successful leader of a country. I mean, the search for that gotcha moment, you know, the single line, I think just about sums it up. I'll repeat Mr. Coyne's observation. Ours is a deeply unserious political culture. And I'll add a deeply unserious political culture in a very serious world. Unfortunately, many in the media marginalize themselves by not bothering to do the homework necessary to get past that first question. Then you get the the very predictable talking point response. I mean, one of the most glaring examples that I continue to bring up is that we allow leaders to talk about transitioning to renewable energy and electric vehicles without a single question about implementation. Come on, where are we going to get or obtain or produce the raw materials necessary, whether it's copper, nickel, cobalt, lithium? There's no plan. And that's because ours is an unserious political culture. One that didn't even blink when the prime minister proudly declared he doesn't think about monetary policy. And after the leader's debate, I think it's pretty clear he's got a lot of company. And as Mr. Coyne says, the debate simply offered overwhelming uh, proof. Now to the second quote. This one by moderator, and he's a political commentator, Evan Solomon. And I have to admit, I nearly spit my tea out when I heard him say it. He stated in quotes, we all know politics is about making hard choices. What? Have you seen the spending and borrowing and deficits? The government, with the support of all party, hasn't made a single hard choice financially. 
And by the way, this is arguably the key issue to be decided in the election. Can we go on borrowing and spending with no end in sight? It's called modern monetary theory. And you better pay attention because as the prime minister said at the outset, the decision to continue with deficit spending financed by the Bank of Canada is in fact going to impact generations to come. I mean, the formula is straightforward. Government wants to borrow money, so it issues bonds. Bank of Canada creates the money out of thin air and then buys those bonds. And it's doing it right now. I mean, it continues. The latest statement says they're going to be keeping buying $2 billion worth of government bonds every week. I mean, we're talking about a radical change, not just to government finances, to the monetary system, which big government advocates love because it means no hard choices. And we've already stated, have started rather, and it went far beyond pandemic relief. Government borrowed and spent so much money that for every dollar that went to someone who was impacted so negatively by the pandemic, $20 went to someone who wasn't. The hardest choice the federal government made was to say yes to two raises MPs were giving themselves despite the exploding deficit. I mean, it's the ultimate free lunch with big government advocates pretending there are no consequences. And that's what we're seeing in the election campaign. I'm not sure if we'd allow it any other way. I mean, campaigns seem to be about what government's going to give us. And all we've removed is how are they going to pay for it? As University of Calgary respected economist Jack Mintz states in the National Post, in quotes, parties are out competing themselves in massive giveaways in the belief that deficit spending has no economic cost. Many Canadians believed that in the late 1980s and early 1990s, too, until runaway inflation and slow growth led to the 1994 financial crisis and true fiscal austerity. Shame on the parties for ignoring that experience. Shame on us if we let them. And to quote, I repeat, shame on us if we let them. Well, certainly the media panel questioning our leaders in both French and English did. The question is, what will the rest of us do? We got a big warning this week from six different major financial institutions saying, hey, you better be careful. I thought I'd get Rob Levy in here to talk about what are they warning us about, Rob? Hey, very simply, Mike, these are stock markets, especially U.S. stock markets that in their view are on fire, priced to perfection. And they're giving the investors warning as we head into September is not severe, nothing extreme, major correction. But hey, be prepared, be on the lookout for a little bit of a pullback in these markets. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, one thing is, you know, hardly a, a news flash. We've been up for 10 months, you know what I mean? You know, but I did think it was noteworthy that you do get these major firms. I mean, the biggest firms in North America and, you know, globally saying, hey, price per perfection, maybe elaborate a little bit on what that means. It, it, Basically, that every piece of good news out there in the market, what they're expecting in terms of companies' earnings growth uh, from the consumer, the domestic economy, what it's looking for in the United States, all this good news is priced into the market. And really, the warning sign comes from what piece of bad news could trigger a wave of selling, could say investors saying, okay, maybe they're a little overvalued at these levels and I need to rotate out of this or go into a different different market elsewhere in the world or different sector. So that, that's where the warning comes you know, especially, and it sort of hints on the fact that as we're hidden into the fall here and everybody's starting to talk about it, what happens if COVID infections start increasing again? What happens if we lock down the economy or not lock down the economy, but things get a little tighter again and people are from home and the consumer spending 
that everybody's expecting and anticipating uh, doesn't really happen until later on into next year, so to speak. And plus, we're entering the September, October period, you know, September being the cruelest month of all, but October being infamous for, of course, the Great Depression and the stock market crash in 1929. So there's a little bit of an overlay to the stock market action. And I I sort of think this is might be what have precipitated their kind of warning to their clients. And I guess that's the thing I want to come back to, Rob, is that you know, what What do you think investors should make of that kind of, uh, especially when you get it from more than one firm, uh, a warning? It, it, that's the timing of it, I think, is everything you talked about that, Mike. You coming back in September after Labor Day weekend, when August is that historically sort of quieter month for the markets, a lot of people on vacation, and you, you come into September, which you go back the last two decades, historically, from a seasonality perspective, is the worst month of the year for U.S. markets. So maybe in that sense, it is a little bit of an easy warning sign for these three guys to put out, Goldman, Citibank, and Morgan Stanley, if we didn't say their names already. Uh, But the other thing from an investor is, yeah, this is a market that's already up almost 20% in 2021. So to be a little more cautious here in the latter half of this year, and it's something that's been said out of this pandemic, and it relates to what's going on in the economy right now. You look at the labor market, you can certainly draw this distinction in many places. Perhaps the easiest gains have now been had for a market that's up 20% already this year. And the rest is going to come a little more cautiously. And there just hasn't been any of that downside volatility yet that some people were expecting. And something potentially could trip these markets up and say, people, okay, I need to take a little risk off the table and start selling. Well, fair warning to everybody. And again, I'm always big on this, as you know, Rob, you know, our job is to manage risk. That's our job as investors, you know, and and advisors or what have you, but is to manage risk out there. And before I let you go, because of course, at Border Gold, you deal with gold, you deal with platinum, you deal with silver. I know a lot of stuff, the precious metals, et cetera. Can you give me a sense of what you feel the retailer, the normal person is thinking about the gold market at this point? Interestingly, gold gold in this market right now is that diversification. Everybody's talking about how much money governments are spending right now, ultra low interest rates. So that creates a natural environment for gold. Uh, Talking to some of our more sophisticated clients, it's been a very interesting market in U.S. dollar terms because we've sort of been range bound in this 1780 to 1830 U.S. dollar an ounce uh, price range. and, And they don't see any ultimate reason why we're going to break out very quickly. We even had some clients that are looking to liquidate larger gold positions because they want to put money elsewhere for the time being, uh, but then taking advantage when we had that pullback to 1700 again, it, it got busy because people were buying the dips because they long-term bullish, but I think some people's short-term thesis on the precious metals are a little under question right now, so they're taking advantage of the pullbacks. Well, a reminder, people can go to bordergold.com. Rob writes a daily, uh, you know, update, weekly update on everything in those markets. If something comes up, that's the place to go, bordergold.com. Rob, thanks for finding time for us. Nice to be with you, Mike. I'm going to get to the quote of the week in a moment, and I've got economist John Johnson But I want to talk about something economically here, or as an opportunity, I should say, rather, for investment, that the pandemic has created, well, you know, accelerated. Haven't you noticed that? I mean, look at e-commerce. Obviously, it was with us, but boy, did the pandemic ever accelerate it. Uh, Online shopping, home delivery. Uh, And one of the other areas is changes to education. 
I mean, especially, obviously, with online learning. So I asked the general manager of, it's a TSX-listed uh, TSX company, Adcor, of Adcor, Martin Vandenbent, to drop by, because I want to talk about this field, because I think it's an absolutely fascinating one with some big opportunities. They refer to it as ed tech. So, Martin, first of all, I appreciate you finding time for us. Good morning, Mike. Thanks so much for uh, having me on the show. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here again. Um, absolutely, as you said, uh, education uh, technology or ad tech in short is a very booming industry. Uh, we see a lot of growth happening there. Uh, typically, we, uh, we see that um, the industry has been changed, as you said, more people working from home, getting their education from home. So there's a lot of uh, a dire need for more uh, um, resources there, both on the software side as hardware side. Um, recently, there was actually a uh, study by AdSearch that predicted that there was a 1.7 billion investment by venture capital funds alone across 105 deals. And in 2027, they predict close to 300 billion industry uh, for the ad tech. So it's a massive growth happening there. Yeah, and you can see it too. I mean, now, one thing that's kind of interesting is we're, I'm sort of familiar with this because, you know, I'm familiar with, uh, you know, something like uh, Khan Academy, you know, that kind of thing, or, or, or TED Talks were sort of a form of uh, beginning this. And I can see this really expanding, not just through uh, Western countries, but this is also a huge opportunity to raise uh, education in certain areas in developing nations too, as they become more wired, more internet hooked up. So I, I just see that you mentioned the growth. I mean, 300 billion bucks by 2027, a number so big, it's hard to sort of <laughs> wrap our heads around other than we just walk away going, Hey, that's big, but it's what, what's kind of interesting. It's not brand new. I mean, this is just, as I say, an acceleration of a trend that was with us. You're totally right there, Mike. Uh, there's a great uh, growth happening. Uh, as I mentioned, there's on the software side things happening. Uh, for instance, uh, as you mentioned, Khan Academy, very big. We have Masterclass that's uh, offering these great recorded sessions uh, for people to attend to on a global level. Um, there's companies like Czech, which is a 12 billion uh, uh, company in digital textbooks. Uh, I'm pretty sure a lot of people heard of a company called Kahoot, which is more the gamification of education, where you have a game-based platform, uh, 35 billion uh, valuation on this company. Um, and then on the hardware side, we have a company called uh, Boxlight, uh, listed on the NASDAQ, 150 million, and there are more in the interactive classroom hardware. Um, so there's a lot of things happening there. Also in the private sector, actually, Duolingo, great example of where you can learn a different language. Uh, that has a, a 2.4 billion valuation still in the private uh, sector, but very interesting. And what we see typically happening, as to your point, is that more people are learning on a global level. So it's more toward, leaning towards live learning, uh, fully interactive interaction with the teacher. And it doesn't, make, it doesn't matter where this person is. It can be in Japan, it can be in Africa, it can be in Europe or here in Canada. So there's so many opportunities there. Well, that's one of the things that, that grabbed where I first uh, was seeing this is that Adcor had made an investment in this area or, or, you know, a move into this area. And this is it's no different than an investor. What were you looking at? Is it these, these kinds of things? You're looking at this massive potential market. What niche or area did you think Adcor could take advantage of? That's a great question. And absolutely, we saw the massive growth happening already. And what we basically designed is a marketplace where we bring together a teacher 
and a student on a global level. And what distinguishes us is doing it live. So all the classes we offer are live. And this has a very unique uh, touch to it because a lot of the players out there have pre-recorded sessions. It's a sequential. You need to uh, make sure you, you book mm-hmm. it in advance. It's on demand, but you don't have the interaction. And what we really found, especially when more people were learning from home, getting the class from home, is the willingness and the the, the the dire need for interaction. So for instance, you want to learn how to play guitar, you really get the feedback how to hold your guitar. Or if you want to learn a language, how to pronounce or the subtle, different, subtle differences in pronunciation. Or if you do a cooking class, how can you uh, use a, a certain substitute for ingredient when you have this class from a, a, master, chef from, a master chef from Italy? So there's many examples. Uh, that you can't cover in a re- pre-recorded session, but you can cover in a live session. And we saw this uh, growth happening. We saw this tremendous opportunity. And with our all, uh, our experience, 15 years in digital marketing and the no- knowledge how to build platforms, that's where we s- saw the opportunity and took it and built this platform. I, it's it's absolutely fascinating, though. And one of the things I'm glad you just brought up for us is, unfortunately, I'm old. So when you say about uh, online learning or learning classes, I go, okay, where's the math? Where's the science? You know, of course, it's there. But I mean, I'm, I'm glad you've brought to people's attention that, hey, you want to do some cooking? You know, you want to learn how to play the guitar? You know, uh, just the range of subjects. I mean, do you have any idea how many classes you're running at this point or, or you know, that the platform can handle? Absolutely. So we're very proud to mention that we have over 1,000 live classes uh, across 80 categories, uh, 300 teachers covering these classes. And to your point, you're never too old to learn. Everyone is welcome on the platform. We have children learning how to play chess all the way up to people that want to learn uh, more about yoga or mindfulness. So there's every, basically every major topic is covered on the platform and we keep adding categories. It's demand driven. So if you have uh, uh, students that want to learn specific categories, we keep adding them as we speak. So it's a great, great platform. And to your point, um, we really want to make sure that we take out all of the hassles. So we cover the payments on the platform. We cover the scheduling, but also the technical things like setting up the video connections. It's all seamlessly. It's very easy. So basically anyone can use the platform without uh, any knowledge uh, or n- not necessarily being digital savvy. Well, I tell you, this is exciting, exciting stuff, you know, and as I say, uh, really a wonderful opportunity uh, beyond North America or beyond Europe, you know, I mean, into so many other parts of the world, uh, doing so many languages. I mean, I, it's amazing. You just start that list and I start checking off in my mind. Yeah, I'd like to learn about that. I'd like to learn about that. I'd like, you know, the list goes on. Hey, Martin, one of the things that uh, I want to let, uh, well, I, I'm sure you're aware of, but I want to let our listeners know is, I think this is such a big area that we thought we could do an, a webinar after the show. And we're going to start one immediately after on this incredible area, which he said, $300 billion. You know, we're talking about estimated revenues by 2027. But I think it's also exciting for personal use, but exciting as an investor. So we're going to do a webinar. And all you have to do, by the way, everyone, just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca, and Martin, sorry to break it to you. We've got a giveaway also for people who show up to the webinar. That's mikesmoneytalks.ca. Martin, in the meantime, thanks so much for finding time for us. Thanks so much, Mike. Martin Vandenbent is the GM North America for AdCore, TSS, TSX listed, AdCore, A-D-C-O. 
Just before I get to John Johnson talking about economics and the coming federal election, plus I've got Ozzy Jurek talking about just a great example how the three levels of government do not get together on their policy regarding housing. We talk affordable housing. We know we need supply. Well, I'll give you an example of one level of government that's just instituted a new set of rules that will discourage supply, plus a shocking stat, Victor Adair and a goofy award. But now to the quote of the week. That we're just following the science mantra is one of the most common phrases that you heard and continue to hear during the COVID pandemic. Now, that's despite the fact that it's so easily discredited when it comes to the response to COVID, given different jurisdictions and official agencies all claim they were following the science, but they issued dramatically different guidelines. Quick example, World Health Organization said that social distancing entailed staying one meter apart. Yet Canada said two meters. Another example. In March, Dr. Anthony Fauci stated that a recent Massachusetts study found that there was no substantial difference in COVID cases in schools observing six-foot or three-foot rules. Now, I suspect the problem is that the science became politicized. Come on, somehow it suited politicians that it was just fine for the massive crowd protesting the death of George Floyd. But eight people at a restaurant? No, no such thing. I mean, there is no definitive science behind either position. And it wasn't the science that dictated that small retailers had to close while Costco and Walmart remained open. It was politicians. But the challenge is greater than that. So many examples of scientists and academics who risked or actually lost their careers for daring to challenge the prevailing government narrative. I mean, that's the antithesis of science. Sciences continue to question. But that's not been the case in COVID or in climate change. And it brings you my quote of the week by Leighton Woodhouse. He wrote a piece called The New Clarity: Faith in Science is an Oxymoron. It was on Substack.com. In quotes, scientific research is underwritten in large part by a steady stream of government funding. To keep the lights on in their labs, scientists need to tap into that stream. They do so by designing research projects that conform to whatever the government policies at any particular moment. End of quote. I've been looking forward to this all week, getting a chance to talk with Davis Ray's chief investment strategist, one of my favorite economists, John Johnson. John, as I say, appreciate you finding time for us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it as well. Well, I started off uh, today's show talking about, I mean, if I was looking for information at the leaders debate, I, I, first of all, I was naive because why should I ever think that? But I didn't get any anyways. And it's interesting, though. When I look at the surveys, people are interested in their cost of living. They're interested in in tax issues. They're interested in government debt. They're worried about the economic recovery. I mean, all of those issues really come back to economics. And yet there hasn't been much, at least by my take, much emphasis on economics during this campaign. We only got nine days to go. I guess there's a lack of emphasis on economics and a complete lack of, of good economics in general in public policy discussions these days. Yeah. Um, And it actually belies the fact that uh, there's an amazing amount of new research being done on a lot of these issues. And it's going to take a while before it filters in uh, to public discourse. But right now it's pretty depressing. And, you know, it it saddens me greatly um, to think about the quality of economic policy making we had from 1984 until uh, the Paul Martin government fell. 
And, you know, we had negotiated a couple of free trade treaties. Uh, we did things, I mean, there was a lot of stuff on the environment that got done. A lot of uh, uh, things in terms of projecting Canada's influence abroad. And most importantly, that's uh, germane to what we're talking about today, was a massive tax reform. Uh, and it was a tax reform that was based on the principle that you want to increase the burden of taxation on what we take out of the economy, consumption, and plus some of the uh, the side effects like carbon and stuff like that. But it was mainly the use of the, the goods and services tax uh, as a source of revenue and an easing and a reduction in income tax rates, both personal and um, corporate. And we had a great run there. Um, you know, we got to a point where people, you know, after the crisis in fiscal policy in, uh, in Canada's debt situation uh, in 1994-95, uh, we saw uh, a big improvement in fiscal policy building on what the Mulroney government had done. And we ended up in this incredible virtuous circle of growing confidence, declining government bond yields, uh, income tax rates were coming down. Public debt was falling first as a share of GDP, then it was falling in absolute dollar terms, and we were able to increase government spending, uh, and they fixed this Canada pension plan, put it on much more solid footing. It was amazing. Uh, it was so exciting a time to watch this, and uh, it set Canada up really well for when commodity prices bottomed in the late 90s and early 2000s. It made it really easy for me, anyways, to say, gee, I think the Canadian dollar is going to parity. Uh, when it was down in the 70 cent range. Uh, if, com when, if commodity prices were bottoming now and the big cycle was down cycle was coming to an end, uh, I wouldn't make that call again. I'd be hard pressed to say it's going to get to 85 cents on a sustainable basis. And if it goes beyond that, we're cooked because we won't be able to compete. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. And for me, who looks at a lot of this stuff, and I pay attention, I've made, I've been very diligent about voting every election, but I've come down to the point now where I decide who I like the least and vote against them, because there's nobody I like. I don't feel comfortable in any of these parties. And I felt comfortable both as a conservative and a liberal prior to uh, the end of the Paul Martin government. And I worked for both parties and I voted for both parties. And now I don't have a home. Well, it reminds me of uh, Alex Usher, um, educational strategies, who said uh, there's no home for growth policies in our, our spectrum. And I think that's the political. Uh, again, don't let me put words in your mouth. Slap me around. But it's the politicization of everything. And yeah. I mean, uh, boy, uh, it's just who can spend more. The status quo is uh, anything threatening the status quo seems to be, uh, you know, a taboo in any way. And we started, uh, you know, the campaign with the prime minister with the really the shocking remark that he doesn't think about monetary policy in an era where the central bank has been more prominent than any time I can remember in terms of, hey, they're the ones creating the money. They're the ones buying the government bonds. They're the one manipulating interest rates down still at the rate of two million, two billion a week, you know, and he's saying, I don't think about it. You know, that's interest rates, as you well know, of course, but it's everything. And yet then I look and I go, yeah, and he's got a lot of company with the other parties. 
I, yeah. I would, it would be hilarious eh, if I got to interview them. They would never allow me to interview them. Their people wouldn't because it would take about 30 seconds to expose. They actually don't know what they're talking about. But my view, and, and a, like your take on this, is it's never been more dangerous. We're in a precarious situation. You add 500 billion in debt, it's precarious. You've got provinces with problems, but it's global. You know, I mean, you think you might want to focus on this stuff. Absolutely. You know, just put it in a longer term context and kind of highlight the magnitude of the challenge. You know, when we look at government debt to GDP ratios across the industrialized world right now, you know, they're at levels that we haven't seen since the aftermath of the Second World War, where, you know, you, you threw all caution to the wind and you spend, spent what you had to to fix the problem. The thing that was beneficial after that was you had amazing demographics, rapid population growth in North America, partly through immigration of people from these hard hit areas of the world. And then we rebuilt from ground from ground zero some of the industrial powerhouses of the world, Germany, Japan, France. And of course, you had an amazing global economic expansion, and we felt it here in Canada. And the debt load went away very quickly. Uh, it was helped along by you know manipulating interest rates down, and there was a bit of inflation here and there, but not much inflation until the early 1960s when bad economic policies took over. Uh, so we look at the situation now where we have this level of government debt. And, you know, I don't begrudge the increase in debt for all the temporary things that were done to help COVID. I think it was necessary. Uh, but going forward, you have we now have a, a world and a particularly an industrialized world with terrible demographics. And it's being magnified by uh, an aversion to immigration. Uh, so we can't reallocate. I'm going to put this in in pure economic terms. We cannot reallocate labor from the areas of surplus population to areas where labor is needed. And that's here in North America. Uh, you know, it, it's going to be very hard to reduce that debt burden, uh, given the demographics we have. And even then, you know, you'd have to have a, an incredibly generous immigration policy to do anything to move the needle on this at all. So you need to have good structural fiscal policies that are designed to generate, you know, a, a budget surplus going forward. Plus, you need growth-oriented policies, and that involves, you know, major another round of tax reform. Uh, I remember on the um, morning of the election when um, Justin Trudeau beat Stephen Harper, uh, I was on a TV show with Mike Wilson, who was the architect of that first tax reform, and Mike and I worked together at a, an investment bank in Toronto when we were on the board together. And I've always been a huge fan of his. And uh, he made a comment that he says the tax reform is he's always very diplomatic, especially in, in a real public situation like that. Or he was anyways. And he said, you know, we need to clean the you know, the tax system gets overgrown. You need to clean the garden out every once in a while. And we have a garden where nothing useful can grow. I don't think right now we need to clean out the system. So we need to, you know, one thing that our politicians have been pretty good on, mainly the two major parties, they've been good on negotiating trade treaties. Uh, you know, a small trading economy like Canada needs these written agreements to protect ourselves in a world that's pretty nasty right now. And uh, so they've done that. Both parties did that. I tip my hat to them, but neither of them are talking about the concept of putting more taxation burden on what we take out of the economy. Uh, 
and less on what we put in. Like I, I think the idea of reducing the taxation on labor savings and capital uh, is a good thing for the economy in the longer run. And, you know, increasing the goods and services tax uh, to generate the um, revenue to do that is the right way to go. It hurts some people because it's a regressive tax, but we can do that. This tax credit system is amazing. Ontario did a, you know, and I was never a fan of the government that brought in the HST in Ontario, but they did a very good job of mitigating that regressiveness. But, you know, I, I just in terms of the HST, I time the decline in smart tax policy in Canada to the cutting of the GST uh, by the Federal Conservative Party and the failure and, and the rejection by B.C. voters of an HST there. Because that whole harmonization of sales taxes was a, 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 an important move for Ontario. And it was one of the few good fiscal moves we've had in two decades. And I think it was essential. And I think we should be talking about that. And the only, you know, I, I mentioned, oh, we should increase the GST and people want to throw things at me. I, I'm very encouraged that in a recent report, William Bill Robson at the C.D. Howe Institute and Don Drummond advocated increasing the GST because it's the right way to go. So let me just um, on that score, just to bring everyone up to speed. I mean, there's a body of research that makes it very clear about which kinds of forms of taxation not are equal when it comes to hurting the economy. And the best way, as you've just been alluding to, is a sales tax because it doesn't discourage anyone from working or anyone from investing. So, you know, but it comes back to and, and then the next is uh, personal income tax. And the worst way is corporate tax. Uh, to raise those because corporations can move jurisdictions so easily, as we've seen, again, if people want to pay attention to it. But your point being that to put it more on consumption taxes, because it doesn't discourage anybody from investing or working. And as I say, body of research supports that. Uh, what's interesting is we have parties working directly against that. Uh, you know, I still, I'm, I don't, I don't want to put you in the hot water, but I still, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. When we want a transition into uh, renewable energy and electric vehicles, everyone acknowledges that's going to take like maybe trillions of dollars, you know, in capital investment. Well, the way to encourage people to invest their money is not to raise taxes on capital gains and on business income. You know, I mean, it's the antithesis. So the same parties that say, let's go green and let's put in policies to make sure we can't. You know, that should be the the chant that they put up. But the thing that also come back to what you're saying, you know, coming and comparing this period in terms of uh, deficits and, and uh, for the Second World War, that period, is there was a distinct focus on getting back to work, on improving, uh, you know, uh, investment uh, in Canadian economy. I don't see that at all right now. I don't see the, the, there's a focus whatsoever. And I'm hardly the first person to notice that. No, uh, it's it's very depressing, very depressing indeed. And um, we have so much work to do, and it's not going to be done uh, by any of the governments going forward. You know, I find it very disheartening to see a right of center government. And I'm kind of a middle of the road person. I swing a little to the right of center, a little to the left of center, depending on circumstance. Um, but the tax policies that the right of center are delivering right now are all these nincompoop things you know, that you know they say you want to put money in the hands of back in the hands of the people but they do it through policies that really distort activity in a non-growth or an anti-growth way it's you know that's go back to a lot of these great canadian values and you know when i look at um 
a lot of the new Canadians who come, they're coming here for a dream. They're, they got their sleeves rolled up and they're ready to work. And I find, you know, my observation, and it's one that's occurred over many years, but it's not data, hard data. But I find a lot of the new immigrants that I've gotten to know and I engage with, they're a lot more entrepreneurial than a lot of kind of longer time Canadians. And they're not going to want to pay high taxes. We want an, uh, uh, an innovative technology sector. But, you know, if you tax them at greater than 50% of their marginal earnings, uh, they're going to look elsewhere. Why not go to Ireland or the U.S.? And I know the U.S. isn't friendly for immigrants in some spots. But, um, you know, if you have a 10 or 15 base, a 10 or 15 percentage point gap in uh, the tax rate on your marginal dollar of income, that's going to have an effect. And we're going to lose talent. And it's completely misunderstood or, I, you know, it's incredible to me. Uh, but let me come to, you know, because I don't want to run out of time here. I've made this sort of wish list of what if I had a wish and I said, these are the policies I'm going to focus on. Are they trying to achieve it? I mean, the number one thing. And, and again, please, I, I'm, I'm only putting this out there for you to, uh, uh, you know, to maybe disagree or have a different list or what have you. But I mean, I'm looking you mentioned C.D. Howe earlier their report on how much capital investment has declined in this country reflected in a 10 year annual growth rate of 1.5% in GDP growth. But the capital investment at a generational low, according to CD Howe. Uh, so my big policy was, or, you know, simple one, one, if I had one line, it would be, what are your policies to encourage people to invest in our country? So that'd be my number one on my wish list. Uh, what's yours? What, what are the one or two or three things that you would say, I wish various parties would address these issues through their policies? Um, just, uh, I, I agree with you on, I, I'm, I also feel the same way about the capital spending uh, because that's a long-term physical investment in the future of Canada and it does have benefit. And if it, that capital investment is in Canada, rather than getting shipped offshore, it has great benefits for the population as a whole. Um, just as far as the CD Howe study goes, the one, as you were talking, I'm kind of going, okay, uh, we have these long swings in commodity prices, and we've been in a, a long downswing in commodity prices. I'd be interested in uh, looking, and I, I should know this, but I haven't, you know, we don't do a lot in Canada, so I don't pay too much attention to some Canadian stuff as much. But um, I'd be interested to see this non- resource-oriented CapEx. It's probably been doing a bit better, um, but uh, we need to do more. We need to really stimulate those parts uh, uh, of, of the economy. So I think CapEx is true, and it needs. To, we need a, a good focus on non-resource CapEx because we're at the, at the mercy of the global cycle uh, on that front, but there's, there is much more we can do. Uh, I also think the, the fo focus on the quality of human capital uh, you know, we've got a lot of people whose whose lives have been disrupted and they've lost jobs and they're not getting retooled to get back into the labor force at a time when we really need workers. So I think the quality of, you know, we need to invest in human capital because this contributes to productivity uh, through the educational system and through healthcare. Um, You know, people are living longer, but we need to improve these health outcomes. And, you know, this COVID episode you know, I, we may look back in 15 years and have this conversation and say, boy, that was a, a troubling time, but it really stimulated change. And we've all been forced to adapt. And the private sector has done what it always does is it adapts. And it's been remarkable 
And it's one of the great stories to come out of this. And it bodes well for, you know, continued economic prosperity going forward. But we could have more. You know, we've digitized and done a lot to, uh, you know, make major changes to the educational process uh, and healthcare. A lot more digitization. Uh, you know, I think one of the things Canada needs is a better healthcare system. We, we rank well relative to the U.S., but we're pretty bad compared to others. And that's fiscally challenging right now because of the aging population. So we need really smart changes uh, in healthcare uh, to generate the good health outcomes and deal with mental illness problems because it's a waste of it, the costs are just astronomical. So I would put that up there as right under CapEx because human capital is going to be essential in the quality of economic growth going forward. And then three, supplementing all of that is and, and reinforcing it, particularly on the business side of investment side and including business investments in human capital is the tax system. Like I, I just want to discuss, I would like to see an intelligent discussion of taxes. And, you know, one of the things that is problematic in the current debate, and this would be the fourth thing, is that, uh, you know, we a lot of us will say we like infrastructure, we like investment. And, you know, it is good. And infrastructure investment should be matched by paid for by using very long term bonds because the benefits are long lived and there should be a matching in this capital investment. And one of the things I find when I, I go to the dentist is every time they give me a big bill and I've you know, I'm waiting for the freezing to come out of my mouth. It's it's not you owe us this much today. It's your investment today is. Turns out every nickel that government spends is an investment, and it's not. You know, we did a lot of current things, things on, on the current government accounts to get us through COVID, and those have to fade. Uh, and we need, you know, intelligent investments that have to be called investments and balanced off against the proper funding for longer-term investments. So I think we need a discussion of the of a current and a capital account in government spending, uh, and because it, it's all blurred together, you know, and you know, pan, you know, throwing money at some group is classified as an investment, and it's not. It's just throwing money at somebody. So those are the four things: capital spending, human capital, through health and education, taxation, and um, the uh, the last one about the current and capital accounts of government spending. I think, first of all, that is an absolutely fabulous list and, and outline of what we should be looking at. And I'll finish with this and just saying, and none of our leaders are talking that way. I have no faith. Uh, look at when someone even mentions, I mean, uh, and this was not, you know, the government or the liberals absolutely went after Aaron O'Toole on a false, and, and they should be criticized, and liberals should criticize this, you know, that you can't even mention private care when 30% of all spending is already private care in the healthcare system. But it's not that. It's that you can't discuss it. You know, it's outrageous. We finished 10th out of 11 countries in the recent Commonwealth Fund survey. I mean, and that's consistent. But my point only being, boy, one of the takeaways from me in watching the two debates was don't question the status quo. Don't dare question the status quo. And then it's just... As we're doing it, plus more money was what we got. So I think your list is fabulous. And I'll just say, personally, I have no faith we have the leadership to uh, enact any of that. No, We do partial things. I remember when the Ford government came to power here in Ontario, they commissioned Ernst & Young to do an analysis of the government spending side of the equation. And I'm one, maybe one of the few people who read the thing, but I'm reading it. And I go, this is amazing. 
you know, they talked about where the costs are and did a detailed analysis. And they said, well, here's an area where, the, where we need to make some adjustments. And they said, well, you know, the Ontario government should look at what BC is doing and what Quebec is doing here because they're doing some really innovative things to control spending. You know, that report just got thrown in the trash and we, you know, we picked on autistic kids and, you know, buck a beer took over. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a really insightful report that looked at how others are doing things you know, under broadly the same political banner, and it just got tossed aside. It was, you know, too, it was too in, too hard to think about, and you know, it's better to talk about beer. Well, you've uh, you've totally, uh, as I say, I think you've given us fabulous food for thought here, a tremendous outline, and you've depressed the hell out of me because on my part, because uh, you're not you, I, I just don't see us having it. But I'll tell you, this has been so worthwhile. I've enjoyed it thoroughly, John Johnson. Thank you for finding time for us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me and all the best. I got to bring Ozzy Jurig in here right now. Ozzy, listening to the news the other day that, uh, yes, BC already has a rent freeze, increase freeze that goes till the end of this year. But then they're going to say the annual increase after that is only 1.5%. So here's my thing. Who in the heck in their right mind is going to build when their costs are going up higher than that rent increase allowable? So if I own an existing rental property, I'm looking around going, where are my, uh, where are my costs only going up 1.5%? Then I'm an investor on the other side looking in and going, yeah, that's not an equation I like. So hence, I won't build more rental properties. Yeah, and it's, it, you and I talked about it, I guess, about two or three months ago when we I had to talk to Mr. Lutz from Kleinbrook, who report, presented some 150 Kapama uh, building owners, and he said, "Look, you know, we used to be four, we used to be two percent four years ago, plus the rate of inflation. So we had a four percent increase. Then we went to two percent, and then we went to nothing. And so they're all hoping that it's coming back because their costs on taxes, water and sewer, utilities, insurance, and of course repairs and maintenance—all that makes up 78 percent of the cost. That hasn't even included the major wages for the managers and the people that are looking." on the cleanup. So all that's happening on one government level, continuous increase in taxes on another government level, the provincial level, limit to what you can pass it on. Well, you've just, by the way, given a great list there. And I think some of them might be uh, variables that people aren't considering. And I, I think one of the ones that jumped out at me was when you say that, yes, you're playing property managers and really they need over a 1.5% increase in their wages alone, given you're watching inflation at 3.7%. You know, their cost of living is going up. So that's just one area, as you say. Yeah. I mean, so many cities, and it's not all the same. It's not a monolith, but many, many cities have got property tax increases that are significantly uh, higher than 1.5%. An, and you say utilities. That's another example. Uh, but I think people uh, have got to get the relationship here. One is it not only bad news if you are the owner and the landlord, but it discourages new people from getting involved when they think this financially won't make sense. Well, that's right. I mean, just going back to the wages, they went up 11.2% in the months of March, according to the to the association. The point is, is that it's not really a fight between the landlord and the tenant. I want to make that clear. There may be the odd bad landlord and the odd bad tenant, but together they actually want to do well. 
But it's government that's the problem, right? I mean, there's, there, there, all of a sudden the government goes right in the middle of it and all of a sudden you have a fight between tenants and landlords and what really is happening. We have almost like this, as I keep saying, the most unreported inflation of all time. It's real. Government says, I need to increase this. And then they come up with, uh, but you guys cannot increase uh, the rent. And so for next year, you have to give also three months notice. All landlords should know that if you want to increase your rent by, uh, say, January the 15th, you want to give the notice to your tenant by October 14th or you can't do it. There's a lot of restrictions also that applies to everything like manufactured home parks of some reason can charge one and a half percent, but also get an allowance for an increase in local government levies, which I thought and regulated utility fees, but not the regular guy can't get it. So what's going to happen is very clear. I mean, why would I invest in residential real estate? The money that's going to go invest in real estate is going to go into repair warehouses, and you and I talked about it at length, buy, buy a storage. Uh, I used to say a storage place, put in a light bulb, and you have a deluxe unit, right? So mm-hmm. more and more the money goes into the area where it's not, uh, where you where you cannot be limited by government to act in a certain way. So three levels of government have three different rules and the landlord is caught in between and to some extent a tenant. Well, and and again, it flies in the face of the number one issue we have if people are talking affordable housing or there's not enough rental units is supply. And we see that it's very straightforward. We know where our population is increasing. We have a lot of newcomers coming into the country. They've got to live somewhere. And this is, I think, a great example, as you say, is the three levels of government are not working in concert. Uh, I was just looking at something by uh, University of Calgary economist Jack Mintz, who looked at all the housing proposals, you know, for affordable housing, et cetera, all the parties. And he says, doesn't add up to a hill of beans, isn't going to make any difference whatsoever. And in fact, some of the things they propose will push prices even higher. And this is another example, though, that we need the three levels of government to be talking and being on the same page, because this will do nothing to increase housing supply. Nothing at all. And in fact, most of the things that I put in my last OSBAS, which I put out yesterday, what exactly on the real estate side all three governments proposed. And and all sounds so good. Mike, if I sat there, you and I said, oh, this is good. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And then I look at what was promised four years ago or six years ago. And it was the same thing, and it didn't happen. It's because they don't dance together. They just dance all to their own tune. And it's, it's, a, it's a crazy world that we're living in, but costs are rising at a dramatic pace right across the world, right across Canada. And at the same time, we are limiting the ability to operate uh, uh, just a reasonable return. Well, as I say, here's the government themselves increasing property taxes, water, sewer, utilities, you know, maybe faster than one and a half percent. And we're just using British Columbia as an example. This is true. doesn't matter where you are. When governments mandate this kind of across the board, one size fits all, uh, you know, ability to raise rents that doesn't take into account all of the variables for costs. And another one that you've talked about over the last couple of years is insurance costs. You know, they're up way further than one and a half percent. I mean, it's laughable. Property taxes, you name it. And that's why this is so detrimental. So it's both things that we're talking about. One is, hey, the three levels of governments do not get together. This is just wallpapering for them. This is virtue signaling, whatever you want to call it. And why do? How, what, and you may disagree. And you may not Aussie, but generally we'd have people disagree. They'd be wrong. Look at the result. Our affordability is worse. Number one reason: government policy. You know, record manipulated low mortgage rates are bringing more people in the market. 
way faster than we can produce supplies, and then they turn around and do something that hurts supply. I mean, this is just common sense. A little bit of economic background helps, but it's common sense. Oh, yes, and, and it comes back to what you've been saying over and over again. We used to do a show comparing ourselves to Seattle. And the supply of so-called affordable home, we're doing one in 10 of what the city of of Seattle does. We're doing one in 10 of what almost everybody else does. And to make things worse, we sold 952 single-family homes in Vancouver last month, but 1,631 condos. And at the same time, our active listings and condos are down a whopping 52%. And the new listings, all the new stuff come on is down 26%. So whatever's going to happen, the pressure on prices is going to continue, which, which, um, which doesn't make it any easier. Well, we'll just finish with that, Ozzy, because we know the three levels of government have had years to get together. They're not going to do it. We'll have more of this to talk. We know it's the supply issue. They keep pretending it's not. Gives us lots to talk about. Gives you much more to talk about. Go to ozbuzz.ca. Earlier this week, Ozzy posted... Uh, you know, a, a review of the different party platforms regarding housing. And he did it without laughing, but that, that's always a good thing. So it's ozbuzz.ca. Be informed when you come to the federal election. Ozzy, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. And remember that inflation is when you pay $20 for the $10 haircut you used to get for $5 when you had hair. <laughs> there we go. Let's go live to the trading desk. Victor Adair joins me. Vic, I got a lot of stuff to talk to you about, but I'm going to start with something I chatted with Rob Levy about uh, a few minutes ago, and that is, you know, you've got these major Wall Street firms coming out and saying, hey, the market's priced for perfection, and they're worried about a correction. Two quick things. We're coming into September, October, traditionally weak times of the year, but is there saying it alone enough to sort of produce a correction? Well, yeah, that's always the question of how much of whatever is priced into the market right now. But we did have what I called a complacent summer. In other words, volatility was as low as it's been in years. Nobody seemed to be worried about anything. The market did kind of march higher. We haven't had so much as a 5% correction, I think, since the election last year, you know, November and and the subsequent Pfizer announcement. The way I'm trading the market now is I'm looking for any opportunity or any excuse maybe even to say that that way to, to be on the short side just in case we have a break. Now, I respect that we've had a powerful uptrend. I am not a, a, you know going to fight that if the market wants to continue going higher. And maybe we need a blow off to the upside, you know, where, where everybody is just, I can't believe this. But uh, I think I agree with those folks that the market is at risk of a, a correction kind of begs the question, Mike, of what could possibly be the catalyst. And you've probably got good ideas on that as, as, as I do. Well, I think, yeah, when the market gets sort of in this framework, and I, I think the September, October timeframe is important because, again, that can set some people's psychological uh, thermometer going. But, yeah, the market starts looking for a reason. A couple things go out there, to my mind, is that, one, people are sitting on profits in some of their stocks, and they may be looking for a reason to take those profits, to take it off the table. So, yeah, I think it sort of sets sets the tone a little bit here. And the market will just take anything. I mean, it could be you talked about China the last couple of weeks. No, the market didn't react, but maybe another move out of China could certainly do it. 
you know, if we have more pandemic, negative pandemic news, that would be another excuse. But I, I'm with you. I think the market and the way you put it, I think is exactly what happens. The market looks for excuses uh, to go either direction. In this case, we've been going up for, as you say, 10 months, maybe looks for an excuse to come down. Well, the tone since we've come back here after Labor Day, and that's a very short period of time, but the tone to me seems defensive. We have not made new highs in the market. Market seems to be just a little bit soft. That is the stock market. The U.S. dollar is bid. So we've gone from what I call the pro-risk view or sentiment in uh, particularly late October, uh, late August, where the U.S. dollar was weaker, the stock market was going up, commodities were bid. That seems to have toned down a bit. We certainly haven't fallen off a cliff. Uh, but in terms of um, possible catalysts, I mean, I've said a few times here that going into the fall, Biden has got to get a lot of stimulus through Congress if, if, if he wants to get the job done. If people are looking ahead to the elections next year thinking that they're not going to have the controls. So now's the time. But it seems as though there could be a lot of disappointment on that. There's some going to be some real wrangling to get the stimulus through. I think the market's just been expecting that the stimulus is going to happen, like trillions and trillions of dollars. And if that's not forthcoming, that could be a bit of a catalyst. Certainly, uh, you know, retail buying has been huge in the markets. Uh, they've been using the option markets to gain extra leverage. That may kind of come back to, to, to haunt them. And here's a wild card. Uh, the head of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, his term expires at the end of January. Biden will have to either reappoint him or appoint his replacement sometime probably within the next two months or so. If he appoints somebody else, particularly if that's a bit of a wild card, that could be a problem for the market. Yeah, I'm with you on all of those reasons. I mean, I think the one is the infrastructure looks like it's, uh, you know, they have so many different name bills down in the U.S., but all of it entails a lot of money. So that may be very interesting uh, if they can't get all of that kind of financial aid through or financial stimulus through. And then the other one I agree is Jerome Powell. If they don't reapport him, it may be an excuse. As I say, if we go another month or so, Vic, and and they haven't made an announcement either way, that also may be enough. Sure. And we've got the Treasury is running out of money, um, you know, so they need to extend the the debt ceiling. And, you know, the Republicans on the other side, uh, they're probably cranky that they're not in charge. So if they see uh, an opportunity to stick a wrench in the spokes, so to speak, they'll probably be jump on that. And, you know, that that could be a catalyst. And then, of course, Mike, of course, there's always the black swan. And, you know, in February of last year, we were cruising along at all time highs at that point. Market was very complacent. Everybody knew the market was going higher. And then sort of out of nowhere come the black swan of the COVID coming from, you know, overseas and spreading. And we had that, I don't know, what was it, a 20, 25 percent correction in the market. Well, obviously, we'll be here to chronicle it on a daily basis. But in the meantime, people can come to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca, A-D-A-I-R, victoradare.ca. Look at the charts. But here's the warning, Vic. Let's finish with this. 
All that tells me so far is that people have to know what risk they're taking. They have to have a portfolio, whether it's a trading portfolio, whether it's investing, that's appropriate for their risk level. And all they're getting a warning to do is, hey, re-examine it. Make sure if there was a 10% correction, you're not going to kill yourself. You know what I mean? You know, because it's psychological as well as financial. So I think it's a good warning. We're coming into that time of year. We haven't had a correction in 10 months. Hey, at the very least, re-examine what you're invested in. Couldn't agree more. VictorAdair.ca. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Jordan Peterson had an interesting thought this week, and one that gets virtually no consideration in the media. In quotes, mandating vaccines is not going to increase trust. Quite the contrary. It is instead an admission that trust has already been violated and an attempt to redress that by force. Well, if you're a regular listener to Money Talks, you know that I think the most important overriding factor, if you want to assess both financial and social movement, is declining confidence in government. And the reluctance to trust government officials when it comes to vaccine is just another manifestation of the lack of confidence in government. But here's the goofy part. We've allowed government and officials and politicians to get away with eroding that confidence by their actions. I mean, you can easily trace it back to things like in the U.S., Dr. Anthony Fauci first telling the public that masks are ineffective. Canadian health officials echoed that sentiment when, in fact, they knew that wasn't true, but were trying to discourage people from buying masks before all health workers had them, which, by the way, was because our frontline workers didn't have uh, masks and other personal protective equipment. It was a direct result of government action. Public Health Canada had destroyed 8.9 million pieces of personal protective equipment. And then despite the fact that the first reported case of COVID in Canada happened January 25th through 20, they waited over six weeks to place an order for masks along with other personal protective equipment. And result was a shortage. But here's the thing. Health officials like Dr. Fauci decided the best way to handle that shortage was to deceive the public. I'm simply saying that has consequences. Distrust of government officials was exacerbated by the fact that officials became the gatekeepers for what information the public was allowed to have, with many believing that was in an effort to scare the public into complying with health guidelines and rules. Further example, where government and their allies in both mainstream media and social media giants like Facebook squelched any effort to explore the thesis that COVID originated in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, this is despite numerous experts saying that was the most likely source. Well, what happened is many people started to ask, what else is government hiding? I mean, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that distrust of government didn't begin with COVID or with some uh, individual politicians ignoring the guidelines they laid out for the rest of us. No, I mean, the manifestations are obvious. Had the election of Donald Trump or the Brexit vote, Yellow Vest movement in France. And now you're seeing across Europe a multitude of protests against COVID restrictions. I'm simply saying that no one should be surprised that for some people, distrust in government, whether that's you or not, but you shouldn't be surprised that for some people, distrust in government is now the result. And it's resulting in their reluctance to get vaccinated. That's all the time we have this week for the show. I just want to give a big shout out, though, to the people who are doing the golf tournament up in Qualicum and Parksville for Special O. 
Oceanside Golf Tournament's taking place today. Victor Dare's uh, big time up there. My wife's up there too. Many other people I know well who are supporting Special Olympics. And I think that's absolutely fabulous. And I'll tell you one thing. If you want things to go better in your life, get out there and volunteer for a worthy organization. Make a donation, as so many of my Money Talks listeners have, when it comes to Special Olympics. And you'll get a chance to do that again because we've got a big auction coming up and you've got the Brit Provincial Tournament happening. But for today, my best wishes to people at Oceanside and my best wishes to you for a terrific weekend. Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your on-demand audio for the complete show, daily podcast, and more.